You are now listening to the E-Watchman Podcast with your host, Robert King. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Watchman's Post podcast. This is episode number 74, recorded in the waning days of the year 2016. As you know, the format of the podcast, I consider questions from listeners. And uh, here's a question that will be the easiest for me to answer. I love your podcasts. Did you decide to stop making them? (laughs) Uh, The answer is no. I didn't decide to stop making them. Uh, But I did miss a couple of months, almost three months, didn't I? And I won't go into why. I don't know why. But uh, I'm glad to be speaking with you now. Here's another question. He says, I've been fascinated with the Watchman site for about a decade. And he says, I, I was, <clears throat> excuse me, it was actually the first source I discovered that could answer questions I had regarding Jehovah's Witnesses' organization that never seemed to get answered at the hall. My question is, you put out such a vast amount of inst- interesting information. What is your motivation in doing so? And where do you get your insights, usually? Does it become wearisome to you? And how did you get this faith trudging through frozen streets in the ministry alone and now writing on your own? I always enjoy your reasoning to these questions. Well, I was, you know, very active Jehovah's Witness for many, many years. And, you know, I was very diligent studying and meetings and service and all of that, and um, maybe I was, you know, more studious than the average, and I I developed, you know, a pretty strong faith, and, you know, I think Jehovah, you know, prepares individuals for a certain assignment. I mean, that that is apparent from what Paul wrote about Jehovah has given gifts in men, and he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelizers, and so for the building up of the congregation. So God equipped me for, obviously, for what I'm doing now, or otherwise I wouldn't be able to do it. But he's done the same for many, many others. I think it takes you know, a great amount of faith for missionaries to do what they do, you know, to to go to a country where, you know, they may be third world standards, they are only marginally fluent in the language and thousands of miles from their home and from their relatives and on and on. That, that takes a great deal of faith. I don't know if I 
could do it. But like I say, the, the, the answer is Jehovah prepares us for what, you know, what he has in store for us. I have, I think, an, an unusual <laughs> ministry for sure, um, but it's nothing unusual. I mean, we look at some of the Bible characters, uh, John the Baptist, for instance. I mean, what a loner he was, lived out in the desert and wore, you know, camel skin and ate locusts and honey. Not not a very appealing diet, but he, he accomplished a great work, didn't he? And uh, we'll see what becomes of my little e-watchman online ministry. Thank you for your question. Sometimes I feel like the Watchtower. In their efforts to exalt themselves and replace Jesus as a mediator, ultimately created a trinity effect. The belief is you cannot leave the organization, otherwise you're leaving Jehovah, that without them you would spiritually starve. My question is, what is the scriptural backing for an organization? Why is an organization needed? The Bible teaches that salvation comes through exercising faith in Jesus and Jehovah, not that we have to be wired to an organization. Is it biblically founded? Well, that's a good question. The simple question, I mean, don't get hung up on the word organization, but I think you'll agree that God provided a congregation, and Jesus founded the Christian congregation, and as I mentioned in the last uh, answer, he, he provided gifts in men to do what? To minister to that congregation or organization. It was an organization. The first century congregation was organized into various subunits, congregations, and they were presided over by elders, and they had ministerial servants. So, the Watchtower has tried to replicate that and to copy that pattern. And I think it's been Jehovah's will to have such an organization, a, a regeneration of what had been lost from really uh, the third century, fourth century, when uh, Constantine became the the de facto head of what passed for the Christian church then. And we, we all know what Christendom is about, or I, I hope we do. But Jehovah's Witnesses represent a revival, a genuine, authentic revival of Christian doctrine and practice. That being said, just as Jesus you know, founded the congregation when he was on the earth, we're, we should know that upon his second coming, and I know Jehovah's Witnesses don't use that term, but it is a biblical expression. Paul referred to the second time he appears, and Jesus referred to his coming many times, so don't be afraid to use second coming. 
But anyway, at his second coming, what is Jesus going to do? What is first on his agenda? He brings his congregation into judgment. He comes to inspect it. And some are approved and some are not approved. That applies specifically to those who have been called into the kingdom. And I've written extensively about that. I won't go into it here, but... So the Watchtower has served as this uh, rallying point to, as an expression of original Christianity. But what they have shoved into the background, literally, is that Christ is going to bring them into judgment. They may give tacit acknowledgement to that, but according to everything that they have interpreted from the scriptures and from Jesus' parables, that judgment occurred back in 1918. That's when the inspector came and judged the house of God. That's, that's old history. But again, everything I've written, and you know, it's been painstaking for me <laughs> to, to put this out over and over again, is that that judgment is in the future. And so, while I think there is some validity to what the Watchtower says, that those who separate themselves from the organization starve spiritually, they become uh, absorbed into the world in a lot of cases. That's why I, I don't encourage Jehovah's Witnesses to leave, even though I highlight so many of these problems and uh, the fraud of 1914 and, and everything connected to that, still I think Jehovah's Witnesses will fare better, you know, toughing it out because there is no real alternative. What it, Sit at home and read your Bible? Well, I, I think that's the only alternative for some, but, you know, there is... Jesus, if Jesus is, let me express this another way. In the letter of James, he says that not many of you should be teachers, my brothers. Well, why is that? I thought Paul said, you know, we're all supposed to, men are supposed to reach out for that privilege of, of you know, presiding and teaching in the congregation. But James warns, because teachers will receive a heavier judgment. So that, that should help us to realize that there are genuine teachers. Jesus has provided teachers for the congregation. And if he brings them into judgment, that means that there is an end judgment. How could that have happened in 1918? None of the teachers living now were alive then to be brought into judgment. But the point is, there is an arrangement, an organization that Jesus is using to teach people, to refine his people, but there is an ultimate day of judgment. Now, one of my favorite prophecies is the book of Isaiah, and, and in particular, the 28th chapter of Isaiah. And of course, it's set in ancient times and dealing with Israel. But, you know, it's really like a matrix, a maze, really, a layered, because 
Jehovah uses that setting to speak to something entirely different, to actually uh, his judgments at the coming of Christ. And that 28th chapter of Isaiah, Jehovah speaks to the prophets and the priests. And they're not false prophets and false priests. He calls them the rulers of this people in Jerusalem. And he recognizes them as his people. And in the 11th verse, Isaiah says, So by means of those with stammering speech and a foreign language, he will speak to this people. So he did that in ancient times by, of course, the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. Take your pick, right? So God is saying that he provided a place of refuge, a place of spiritual refreshment. That's what he intended. But he's taking the rulers to task because they ruined it for God's people. And Isaiah goes on to say, the word of Jehovah to them will be command after command, command after command, line by line, line by line, a little here, a little there. So, (laughs) as the Watchtower pointed out, ironically, it's sort of a nursery rhyme that is repeated and that is really sort of uh, epitomizes the, the Watchtower's Uh, modus operandi, you might say, their teaching method. You must do this. You must do that. You must turn in your time. You must pay attention to your dress and grooming and a little here, a little there, you know, be punctual, be, you know, know, the drill, right? (laughs) Literally. And so that is what Jehovah is going to address. The very things that this questioner is questioning that, and Isaiah goes on to say, so they will walk, they will stumble and fall backward and be broken and ensnared and caught. And when is this going to happen? Well, verse 16 says, here I am laying as a foundation in Zion a tested stone, the precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. No one exercising faith will panic. And then he goes on to describe he's going to flood away their refuge of lies. So this didn't happen in the first century. We know that Christ is the foundation cornerstone of Zion, Jehovah's heavenly kingdom. It's referring to the second coming. And those who exercise faith will make this transition from Jehovah's organization now with its command after command and line upon line and on and on. They'll make the transition to accept the incoming kingdom. But unfortunately, some will not. They will not have the faith. But the point is, Jesus is using this organization to prepare our faith. The irony is, our faith will have to surmount this demise of the organization. I mean, if I... I know... There's a lot of listeners and readers out there. Have I expressed that, you know, in, my, in all my ravings and ramblings and writings? Is that, 
Have I not been clear about that? I mean, that's that's the one thing I've tried to get across, and uh, maybe I haven't been very successful. This is an interesting question. He says, the Bible talks about angels looking down on the earth at the women, and they liked what they saw, and they made human bodies for themselves, and went and took as many of the women as they wanted. My question is, I find it strange that angels would have sexual feelings as they are spirit beings. <laughs> well, I, I hear you. I hear what you're saying. And uh, I find it very strange, too. It is very strange. And uh, it, it is not natural for angels to have those feelings. And so, uh, remember when, when Adam saw his wife, he had been alone for apparently a number of years with the animals, and when he saw the woman whom he named Eve... He said, at last, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. In the case of Eve, she really was from his flesh and bone because Jehovah took one of his bones. Uh, but he also recognized she was his kind. <laughs> like they say, you're my kind, baby. Well, that was literally the case. And she was the only one of his kind. But angels and humans, although we're both made in the image of God and we have Jehovah's personality and we can appreciate Jehovah's qualities, we are not the same kind. Uh, they're a higher kind. And, you know, the Jesus talking to Nicodemus, he said, what is flesh is flesh and what is spirit is spirit. So for a spirit, I mean, it's one thing to admire beauty I mean, the Bible makes mention of women's particular beauty, you know. Abraham's wife was beautiful. Uh, Esther was extremely beautiful. So Jehovah made beauty. It obviously exists in the heavens. The angels are beautiful. Uh, Jehovah is just, if you could see him, probably you'd just be spellbound. Your mouth would drop open and you'd never seen anything so beautiful and humans are a reflection of Jehovah's beauty. So it's, it would not be unnatural for an angel. I remember the angels when Jehovah created the earth and capped it with Adam and Eve, they shouted in applause. So when they saw Adam and Eve and saw Jehovah's intention to fill the earth, they were enraptured. This is just beautiful. What, what a wonderful thing that this God did. And uh, I, who knows what else he's going to do. Anyway, it would not be unnatural for angels to admire human beauty. But the question, why would a spirit desire to mate, to have sex with a lower creature? And uh, I really don't have an answer for that. I've often wondered, why would an angel who had seen the face of Jehovah, why would they ever go against him and end up hating him and become his enemy. I can't figure that one out. But I, I can sort of, I don't want to put myself in their position, but I think 
to try to, this is just me talking to myself, don't take this as gospel, but once Satan had set himself up as a god, what, what was his primary motivation? Well, it was pride. The Bible makes that clear. Uh, he wanted something that Jehovah had. He thought he was entitled to something that God had, the exclusive worship and admiration of the first two humans. He thought, oh, wow, I want that for me. I want them to look to me like they look to God, that, like I am God. And he wanted that so bad, he schemed, and he got what he wanted. And, you know, Jehovah didn't do <laughs> too much about it at the time. The angels could see, well, you know, Adam and Eve lost paradise. They were out out in the uh, wilderness there. But God let them live, and they began having, as it mentions, sons and daughters, beautiful women, and they were living somewhat fulfilling lives, we must imagine. And apparently some angels began coveting the same thing Satan coveted. Not necessarily sex, but to be admired by women. Because if it was just a matter of having sex, they could have taken one wife, right? That's the arrangement God made. Let a man leave his father and mother and stick to his wife, singular, They took all the wives they wanted. What's that all about? Well, it's covetousness. It's greed. They were revel... When these angels materialized, don't you think they would materialize as the most handsome, dashing fellows that could speak about all kinds of things that earthly men knew nothing about? And let's face it. Ladies are attracted to power, powerful men. Oh, look at Donald Trump, a billionaire. The guy's got his trophy wife and beautiful model. And, you know, that's how it works. Women are attracted to men with power. And these angels could probably impress you with their <laughs> magic tricks or whatever, you know. Uh, probably had extraordinary human powers. So they they reveled in that. They got to play, you know, they had their harems, they were groupies or whatever, you know. That's the way I relate to it. Rock stars are sort of, you know, the demons can't materialize, so they live vicariously through, you know, popular rock stars or what have you. But I think that's it. It was it was not a sexual need, you know. I mean, that's natural in a human, you know. Paul Paul recognized that, you know. If you don't have self control, let them marry, right? That's that's Jehovah's provision, uh, but it wasn't his provision for angels. They had no such need. So, but I think the angels listen. They're sons of God, right? And you know how sometimes sons and daughters take advantage 
of their parents. I know I did. You know that they really are kind and soft-hearted and, you know, they might frown at you, but they're not really going to punish you. I know that may not be the case with many of you who were maybe abused or overly <laughs> parented, uh, but I'm thinking, you know, they, they had an idyllic upbringing, right? Heaven. They never saw hardship. Jehovah never had to discipline anyone. He certainly never destroyed anyone. He just gave them everything. Jehovah gives and gives and gives and gives, and he doesn't ask very much back except respect and obedience. Huh? And it's not a big deal for a perfect creature. And so I don't think, especially after they saw Satan, you know, he's going on about his business, and so are the humans, even though they're in this imperfect state. When the angels came down, I don't think they really thought that Jehovah was going to punish them. But then came the flood. And they were forced to dematerialize and leave their harems behind. And then Jehovah put the clamps on them. And uh, they weren't allowed back in Jehovah's favor. And that's when they became these demons. And they hate Jehovah now. They, they despise him. He's their enemy. They're terrified of this coming judgment. They know now he's, he means what he says. Um, that's, that's the best I can make of it. Okay. Um, can we assume that the eight symbolic kings in Revelation are each successors of each other with no time in between them where none of them are ruling? Uh Yes, but I think that you have to really, uh, you know, <laughs> loosely apply that, but particularly to the the Roman king, the sixth king, you know, in the, in the Bible times, the, the succession was quite stark at times, right? Uh, Babylon conquered uh, Assyria, and then the Medo-Persians conquered Babylon, took it over in one night, boom went from Babylon to Medo-Persia. And then, of course, Alexander conquered the Persian Empire. And then it gets kind of, you know, <laughs> fuzzy. It took a while for the Romans to uh, subdue the Greek Empire and absorb it. The barbarian hordes sacked Rome. But the Roman Catholic Church really became the successor of the Roman Empire. And uh, really, from the time of the, the Holy Roman Church, it ruled Europe for about a thousand years. Uh, really, up until, I think, uh, Henry broke with the Catholic Church, which put Britain on the trajectory to, to dominate Europe with its empire. So yeah, the, the eight kings rule consecutively, except, you know, of course, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that the eighth king is ruling now, along with the seventh, uh, but uh, no, no one can clearly explain how, you know, the League of Nations may have been 
an eighth king. It had no ruling power. The United States wasn't a member in honor. And no one can explain how uh, the Anglo-American duo may have suffered a catastrophic mortal wound during World War I. So that, that's a future event, the downfall of the Anglo-American duo. But then they will revive only to transfer their ruling authority to an eighth king. But they rule simultaneously because the seventh king, the eighth king doesn't derive his power except from the seventh king. So it's kind of a, a sock puppet kind of arrangement, I guess. I don't know. It's probably a better way to put that. Okay. Um, at 1 John 1.51, Jesus tells his disciples that they will see the heavens opened up and that they will see the angels of God ascending and descending to the Son of Man. So the question is, since I cannot offer any passages that show this event taking place, how and when will it take place? Well, Jesus said that uh, to his disciples, uh, to Nathaniel in particular, at the very beginning of his ministry, he had just been anointed and come back from the wilderness, having been tempted by Satan, and he began gathering his disciples. And John, of course, had introduced him as the Messiah. So it appears that Jesus was quoting or alluding to uh, the dream that Jacob had. It's recorded in the 28th chapter of Jacob. <laughs> Excuse me, the 28th chapter of Genesis. I get distracted sometimes because I'm looking at the screen here to make sure the thing is recording and I'm looking at the... <laughs> so sometimes my mouth goes and my brain is dis dysfunctional there. Anyway, uh, Jesus m was probably alluding to this dream that Jacob had. It's called Jacob's Ladder. He fell asleep and had this dream of a ladder uh, extending up to heaven with angels descending and ascending with Jehovah at the top. And Jehovah spoke to him and told him that he was going to give uh, his people this land that he was sleeping in, as before, you know, the Israelites were even uh, formed, or obviously he was the father of the Israelites. Jehovah changed his name from Jacob to Israel. And then he reiterated his promise that... Uh, by means of his seed, everyone would be blessed. And, of course, that's a reference to the coming of the Messiah. And so I think Jesus was saying that to indicate that he was the Messiah and that he was also the Son of Man. And that, uh, that connects him up with the prophecy in, in Daniel, where... Um, Daniel had a vision of, in the seventh chapter of someone like a son of man uh, gaining access to the ancient of days, obviously in heaven and all the angels uh, in procession. So, but of course, the angels actually did uh, minister to Jesus on numerous occasions in, in the wilderness and uh, in uh, Gethsemane. And the apostles actually, you know, they... They saw Jesus transfigured, and then 
the, the angels appeared to them on, when Jesus was uh, taken up into heaven. So, although there was not uh, literally a procession of angels coming and going, I think, as I said, Jesus was showing that he was the Messiah. And, well, as he said on the night of his arrest, do you not think I can call 12 legions of angels at this moment? Okay, uh, interesting question here. What is the possibility of the Watchtower's NGOs helping to create the persecution towards Jehovah's Witnesses in Russia? You know, my, my first uh, thought was that's probably what is going on. As you know, there's numerous NGOs that have been set up in, in Europe there's Jehovah's Witnesses administration for Poland, for France, and um, th and there's one for Russia. And of course, they've done this to, for legal purposes, but they've used their these NGOs, as you know, they've um, gone to political conferences and and things like that. But in uh, 2012, I believe, or maybe 2013, Russia passed a law uh, to, the, called the Foreign Agents uh, Law, and it was a crackdown on NGOs that were being used or that were receiving money from foreign countries, uh, obviously for purposes to undermine the sovereignty of Russia and so forth. And I'm sure that's a very real thing. The same thing is going on in the United States. Uh, a fellow named George Soros, a billionaire who's uh, really a front man for the uh, Crown of London, he has a number of NGOs. Uh, now, for example, a political NGO in the United States and he has some in Russia as well, and Putin knows the score on that. They're being used to undermine the political institutions. So anyway, that, that was probably the main reason. But for one thing, even if the Watchtower was not an official NGO, it would still be considered a generic NGO, simply a you know, non-governmental organization, non-profit, and so forth. And the uh, government of Russia is going after all, apparently, all religious organizations except the Russian Orthodox Church. And I suspect that that's, you know, that's, we've seen that over and over and over again in Catholic countries and in other Orthodox countries like Greece, that it's pressure from the clergy to... You know, it's business for them, and they want to get rid of the competition, basically. And so, and by the way, Vladimir Putin is a baptized member of the Russian Orthodox Church. That's right, he was baptized back when the USSR was in control. And he, he, he was secretly baptized. It was illegal to be baptized. But, so apparently he is a, is a staunch believer in orthodoxy. So, um, they've cracked down on not just Jehovah's Witnesses, but 
Catholics, Pentecosts, uh, pretty much across the board. But I think, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses are the most visible, obviously, uh, you know, with the information carts and knocking on doors and all of that. So uh, the Watchtower has given Jehovah's Witnesses instructions to get off the street with their information stands and according to what I've heard from a Russian brother who commented that uh, the Watchtowers instructed Jehovah's Witnesses not to identify themselves as such. <laughs> so I, I, I don't know. I don't know how that's going to fly with Jehovah. I would think the Watchtower would have to uh, apologize to the many of Jehovah's Witnesses who uh, spent years in Siberia and in the gulags back in the Stalin era and the Khrushchev era because uh, they refused to compromise. So anyway, I, you know, the Watchtower has compromised and whether this will be their uh, uh, Jehovah's reason to you know, back away from assisting them, um, we'll see. But at some point he will as the scripture says, hide his face. Well, my friends, I think that's going to do it. If you have questions, please send them to me, and uh, I'll really try to do a podcast uh, early on in um, January, at least sometime in January. I'm not going to commit myself to early on, but um, thank you for listening, and thank you for sending me your questions. And now instead of my usual sign-off, I'd like to play DJ for you. This is an artist I heard in a coffee house in Toronto back in 2001 or 2002, I think. And his name is Ian North. And uh, I bought his CD. And I came across this song on YouTube again recently the other day. And uh, I want to play it for you. The name of the song is Beautiful City. Will be rewrite. 
make it turn out good and All the houses and the beautiful city will be warm Have room for everyone We will walk along strong bridges in that beautiful city Oh, and gather who we find and take them home Find and take them 